0: So I want to take five minutes and just tag on what we just experienced with St. Mark's, St. Mark enrichment. Richmond. Um, I was reading uh, an article yesterday night, and it was talking about the classrooms, classrooms that are totally disruptive, where students are, the best way to say it is they're going berserk. And we're not talking about uh, senior high or junior high, we're talking about young second, third, fourth graders to the point that it's becoming unsafe for teachers and unsafe for the students, the good students. And when I say good, I mean the ones that are following the rules and things along those lines. I'm not trying to make a moral statement here. But I, as I read that article, I thought, oh, well, where is this taking place? In Iowa. In Iowa. So as I was thinking about that and processing that, I was thinking, you know, we can do... There's a certain number of reactions we can have to that information. Because some teachers are saying, it's not worth it. It's not my safety. Is it worth giving my safety up? I, I guess I'll have to find a new profession. And so some very good teachers are just walking away. And, and I was thinking, so what do we do? Do we howl at the moon? Do we complain about our the state of our society? Do we... Uh, what do we do? Do we just say, oh, we can't, there's nothing we can do? There is something we can do, and it's this it's partnering with a program like this that is ministering to students and helping them, encouraging families. So, you know what? You don't get to complain unless you're willing to do something about it. This is an opportunity to do something tangible that you can do. So we often complain and we howl at the moon. I tell the staff sometimes, you know, we can howl at the moon all day long, but it's not going to change our circumstances. We need to do something about it. So this is an opportunity for us to make a difference in a boy or a young boy or a girl's life, a family. So you can, take a, you, you can choose what path you want to take but I hope that most of us would say, you know, let's take a positive path. Let's do something positive because we got to do something. Uh, So there's my two cents, all right. That wasn't even five minutes, so there you go, right? And uh, so so the question I want to ask you this weekend is this. I want to ask you if you, as you think of the disciples of Jesus, do you think you qualify? Now let's just throw it off. We know they were all men, okay? So let's just throw that all off. Let's just say there were no restrictions of male or female, and let's just say that there wasn't a significant age. Let's just say, do you personally feel like you qualify to be one of the disciples? Do you think Because I think if you're like most people, and I don't know what you're thinking right now, but I think if you approach this question, you think, oh, well, no, they're the disciples. They're like in that famous painting, right? (laughs) No, 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 I'm, you know, no, I'm not them, right? But as you look at, and this is what we're going to look at this weekend, as you look at who Jesus chose, you'll be really surprised at who he chose because it's not who you think and the point of this is we have to look at what Jesus does in who he chooses to be his disciples and not just that but what the truly what the gospel truly means i read an article in the paper today and i was real disappointed about how the gospel was seen as just following rules and getting a gold star and i'm thinking I don't know. I don't read that in my Bible. So let's go to Mark chapter 2. And I just want to read a few verses, uh, starting at verse 13. And let's look at these disciples. One in particular happened to love his name. It'll make sense in a minute. Stick with me. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi. Now, Levi doesn't sound like anyone you know, but it is. Son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciple, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have come... Uh, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, the other name that Levi went by was Matthew. See, it all comes together now. So let's look at the call of Jesus. And that's the first point in your outline, the call of Jesus. Who were the first followers of Jesus Christ? Because that's really want we, where we want to go. We want to say, okay, so who did he choose, right? Who did he choose? Well, his call is very wide. Jesus calls, and we don't have it in this account, but if you read the earlier accounts, uh, the other gospel accounts, you see that he called Peter and Andrew, James and John, and by the way, they were all fishermen, okay? It says at one point, Jesus came uh, to uh, where James and John were fishing, uh, and he said, come follow me. He said they left their, their nets with their father and the hired hands, and they left, and they followed Jesus, but the people that Jesus calls are very surprising. So first he calls common blue-collar fishermen, right? They were ordinary people. They would be respected, respectable blue-collar people. So that's not super surprising. But Levi, or Matthew, on the other hand, is very surprising. That's why you hear the teachers of the law, and they're basically saying, why does your, your rabbi, your Jesus, why does he... Why does he eat with these people? He shouldn't have anything to do with these people. And so Matthew, on the other hand, would have had quite, he would have been quite wealthy. He was a tax collector, or some translations say publican. Publican uh, tax collector, same thing. So basically he was a tax collector. Now I know you're thinking, uh, you know, so the tax collector was despised uh, by most Jews. Now Matthew was Jewish. And he was a tax collector. He was—he would have been outcast uh, and uh, considered an outcast from the general Jewish society. It was one of those professions that they saw as a traitor. So you think of IRS agent, but worse. Okay. Um, uh, but he uses the phrase publicans or tax collectors, and they were hated by the Jews because they were seen as traitors. Levi or Matthew probably worked for the, the Galileans ruler Herod Antipas. And so he would have been required to gather a certain amount of tax owed by the people. Now, many times they had to pay for these positions. And so he had this high uh, position in working for Rome, the Roman government. And his job was to collect a certain tax that would be levied in his district. So he had, let's just say that his, let's say his district was Dubuque, Iowa. And they would say, Herod Antipas would say, okay, so you need to collect, uh, it, sometimes it was on tar- tariffs, on uh, everything, travel, uh, stuff, but let's just let's get, get to the point of where, where we're at. So essentially, let's just say that you have to bring in a million dollars this coming year, okay? A million dollars. So uh, he goes, Matthew's job would be to collect this, get to bring the money in, send it to herod but everything he got over a million dollars was his so it would not be uh, so if you're doing that and you realize that you you can't say oh i only have seven hundred fifty thousand, herod's not going to be good with that so that's not going to work so you basically say well i'm going to if i collect more that's okay so if i say you owe more than you really owe and I end up with extra, that's good for me, because otherwise it's coming out of my pocket, right? So that's how many tax collectors would operate. Some of them were devious, but so you could see why a Jewish person would see this person as a traitor. Here you are working from Rome, taking our money. So they were quite uh, quite looked down upon because of their corruption. Interestingly enough, you can write this reference down, I'll read it to you. Some tax collectors came to John the Baptist. You remember he's out by the Jordan baptizing people? And this is what what John the Baptist says to the tax collectors. He says, it says in Luke chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they're asking John, they ask, what should we do? And John says this, don't collect any more than you're required to. So you could see that there's just a lot of corruption going on in this position. And so you can understand why they would be hated by their fellow citizens. They were seen as traitors. Now, we know that Matthew was quite well off, because after all... If you look at verse 15, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him, and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So the point is, he had money. He was able to throw a party and have all these people come together. And, as, you know, many of his uh, compadres and other people came. This was <laughs> This was not the... The, the morally, uh, you know, they were morally challenged. But essentially, the point I want you to see is that Matthew had some wealth here. He was a wealthy man. So when John, now it's other, the other thing that's interesting, and I mentioned this before, when Jesus calls James and John, it's very interesting, he says, come follow me. And it says immediately they left their notes, in their nets, and they followed Jesus, right? That's what it says. And it says that they, you know, they left their father and and the hired uh, men in the boat, and they followed Jesus. And so people say, there's an example of a follower. They left everything. Well, they left their nets, they left their profession, and they followed Jesus. But the, the dad still had the business. You know, he still had the business. They could go back and work for dad anytime they wanted. So they left their jobs. So they left their, 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 their nets. But what I want to show you is that Matthew doesn't just leave the nets. He leaves his profession. Look at... Look at uh, if you read, um, again, another verse, write it down. Luke's account is very interesting about Matthew's call. And this is what it says. He says, after that, he went out. This is Jesus. And he noticed a tax collector named Levi, that's Matthew, sitting in a tax booth. And he said, follow me. And this is what Luke says. And he left everything behind. And he got up and he began to follow him. And I just want you to understand that Matthew, when he left, he left his life. He left his past life. He said, that profession is no more. So he really left everything. This was his source of income, and it was very lucrative for him. And he left it all. Now, what's very interesting, as I was reading through the Gospel accounts, what's very interesting to me, Luke says, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and and the book of Acts, says that he left his booth, and he left everything, and he followed Jesus. Matthew has the account of his own. I want to read that to you this is what matt this is how matthew describes the day that jesus called him all right this is matthew his words notice what he says verse matthew 9 verse 9 as jesus went on from there he saw a man named matthew see he doesn't use levi he says matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth follow me he told him and matthew got up and followed him Now, what's interesting to me, and I don't know if I'm reading too much into this. I don't really think I am. It's interesting to me because if you ever wanted to blow your horn about how you left everything to follow Jesus, this would be the time to do it, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you say, and I left everything that I had to follow Jesus. You know what Matthew does? Luke mentions it. He doesn't even mention it. He doesn't even mention it. Now, why is that? I think it's Matthew basically saying, it's not my horn to blow. The only horn I blow is the horn for Jesus. Yes, I left my business. So what? That's not the point. The point is Christ. So I think as you read the Gospels, it's very interesting that Luke puts that detail and Matthew doesn't bother. I think he's, he's at a place where he's embarrassed to brag on what he left. But he left a lot. He left a lot. So the, the call of Jesus is specific. Secondly, his call is gracious. His call is gracious. Um, there's no religious type that Jesus is looking for. Jesus, uh, Jesus' call goes out to any and all. The only ones who are excluded are the religiously proud, the self-righteous. We see that in verse 17. Jesus can reach and transform anyone. He, he, he can reach... If, if he can reach and transform ta- a tax collector like Matthew, Levi, if he can uh, transform a, a guy that's over tax collectors like uh, Zechariah... or Excuse me. Um, not Zechariah, but... Uh, it'll come to me. Hang on. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, thank you. He was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Thank you. Um, but he was overall tax collector. If he could turn hearts like that, then uh, basically everyone has hope. But the call of Jesus means that no one, that, that there is no one out of his, his reach, that there is no one too far gone, and there is no one who is unreachable. You may be here this weekend. You may be listening online. You may be at this campus or at the Rosheck campus. And I just want to say to you that. You may think you're too far gone. You may think that there's no forgiveness for you. And I just want to say that you are not too far gone, and there is forgiveness for you. And Jesus' call is a call, not a call of merit. It is a call of grace. And, and I think that's part of what uh, I was kind of, as I was reading the article in the paper today, I thought, this seems to be, the understanding uh, seems to be a call of works merit badges that's work, I've earned it I've deserved it, it's not grace it's not mercy um, but finally his call is absolute there's no competition in our hearts with him there's no uh, half-hearted halfway commitment you, the point is when Jesus makes the call to Peter and Andrew and James and John and to Matthew it's, it's all, you're either all in or you're not in you don't have one in you don't have one foot in and one foot out the allegiance jesus comes before any other allegiance family allegiance uh, vocation economic or social and jesus says that much in uh, matthew chapter 8 look at verse 18 when jesus saw the crowd around him he gave orders to uh, cross to the other side of the lake then a teacher of the law came to him said teacher i will follow you wherever you go sounds good Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said, follow me, and the dead will bury the dead. Oh, wow. Now, there's more going on than just the surface, so don't get all freaked out about the surface and the answer there. But the point Jesus is making is you're either either in or you're out. It's not one foot in, one foot out. It's not adding Jesus as an accessory to your life. It's not thinking he's a good teacher that we can learn good lessons from him. Uh, it's it's understanding that he is our only hope of salvation, and if he doesn't come, we're doomed. If he doesn't come into our lives and our hearts, we're doomed because we're sinners and we're doomed. So that's the call of Jesus. Let's look at point number two, the response of sinners, the response of sinners. So the question Jesus makes, and this is the last statement he uses, is who are the real sinners? I mean, the teachers of the law are basically saying Jesus is eating with with tax collectors and sinners. Put an equal signs there because it's the same thing. So who is a real sinner? And Jesus says something very interesting. When he says he did not come for the righteous, does he mean that some people don't need him? In other words, they're righteous enough. They're so good that they didn't need Jesus to come. I, I actually think that there are people on this planet that think, well, Jesus died for them, but not for me. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. and They, they really need Jesus, but not me. I just need a little dusting off from time to time, a little dash here, a little dash there, and... This is really what Jesus is doing. He's making an assessment of self-righteousness. Notice what he does. He calls himself a physician. When do you call a physician? When do you call a doctor? Well, if you're like most people, you only go to a doctor when you realize that healing is out of your control. You go to the doctor when you can't get better by yourself. We were in the emergency room, Carol and I, this week with a little boy who gashed his leg open. It was pretty easy for the parents to determine at that point, yeah, we need to get a doctor here. This is something that somebody else has to fix. We can't do this ourselves. And you have to come to a place in your life where you you understand. Now, here's what you don't want from the doctor you don't want to go in, and let's take the example of this little boy that was taken into the, to the emergency room this week. You don't want to go in and have the doctor look at this little boy's leg and say, Yep, gashed it open, sure enough. Okay, 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 now what? Now what? What do we do now, right? What, what do you do now? Because we can't do it. You have to do something. You don't want the doctor just to agree there's a problem, right? What you want is you want intervention. You want a cure. You want to be healed. You want stitches. Thirteen of them. Now, who wants to go to a doctor? Some of you don't like going to a doctor. Now, I, you know, I'm assuming some of you are thinking, yeah, I know that person. Or maybe you're thinking, yeah, it's me. I don't like going to doctors. Why, why don't you want to go to a doctor? Here's why we... When I don't want to go, this is why. Because I don't want the doctor to find what I think he might find. I don't want him to say, Oh, you know, it's kind of like going to the dentist too, right? You don't want to go to the dentist. Because you go, he's going to find something. He's going to prick something off and break something. Or, Sorry, if you're a dentist, <laughs> I have no idea what you're doing. But uh, that's what it seems like sometimes. But you don't want to know the bad news, right? You just say... And you, you play Sergeant Schultz, if you don't know who that is, ask your parents or grandparents. You just basically want to be blind to it. You just want to say, oh, I'm just going to hope everything's going to work out. But you kind of know deep down there's something wrong with you. In other words, you know there's something wrong with you, but you won't admit it. You won't go get help. You won't get healing. By the way... This is driving some people who are very close to you and love you crazy. Because they know you're hurting. They know you need to go to the doctor and you won't do it. So the righteous that Jesus is talking about, the ones he's referring to, are people who think they are okay and can heal themselves. That's why he says righteous don't need a doctor they don't think they're bad that bad they think they're okay they see themselves as being right with god many people think i am right with god because i'm following this ethical system that our family has followed for years and years and years and generation after generation after generation it was okay for my grandparents it's okay for my parents it'll be okay for me we just do this we follow the rules they don't feel like they need a sole physician. Someone who intervenes to God for them. Who does what they cannot do for themselves. Often these people see Jesus as a good moral example, but they they don't see Him as a Savior. Let's not go crazy here. He's a good moral example. Certainly we can learn some good moral lessons, but don't tell me that that I need a Savior, that I'm a sinner, that I'm under the wrath of God. Don't tell me that. I want the kinder, gentler Jesus. The nice one. They don't think they need spiritual healing. By denying their real need, they have shut out their only source of healing. Right? I've heard really sad stories about people who knew they should have gone to the doctor and they've waited and waited and waited. And they finally go. And the doctor says, yeah, you've got a problem. If you had come in six months ago, we could have done something, but now it's too late. You see, when you think you don't need help and you don't seek help, you will not, if you don't are willing to humble yourselves, you will find no healing. You will find no healing. So, so the first surprise that we find in the story is that Jesus was accepted by the party crowd, Because they knew that they were sinners needing a doctor. (laughs) They were exactly the last ones that we would have expected. And they're His first disciples. Matthew is one of His first disciples. And fishermen. And Jesus is telling us that He will help those who come to grips with their condition. Who know they are morally, spiritually failures. Unable to save themselves. And only people who admit their sin... Will accept their spiritual bank, who accept their spiritual bankruptcy, can find any real connection, forgiveness, or healing with Jesus. You have to come to a place where you acknowledge that sin is beyond your grasp and control. And then if Jesus doesn't come into your life, you're doomed. In other words, the prerequisite for meeting Jesus is not living a good life, but admission that you are not good. And that you'll never be good enough to stand before God. You need to come to a place where you see that Jesus is not merely a good teacher, but he is a necessary doctor. To find spiritual healing, you must accept that you are spiritually lost. That's the first step of being found, is to realize you're lost. That's why men always are never lost, (laughs) even though their wives say, Oh, you are lost you are lost. And then it's like, ta-ta, when they say, I think I might be lost. Duh. Have you, guys, just on a side light. Have you been driving and your wife says to you, you're lost, right? And you go, no, I know where I am. <laughs> well, where, and you say, well, where are you? And you at least know you're in a certain state so you say well i'm in iowa see i'm not lost i'm in iowa i'm not in africa i'm in iowa right yeah okay here's the second surprise second surprise is that jesus was rejected by the religious crowd because they thought they were righteous not needing a doctor and i want to just tell you one of the saddest things in my heart this weekend and weekends on a regular basis is that i know there are people that go to church every weekend And they're going to church out of duty, not out of delight. They're going because they've been told that's what they need to do to be righteous enough to be accepted by God. And they think they're doing a pretty good job. And they don't think they're really bad. And when you start talking to them about a relationship with Jesus Christ, they look like dears with their eyes glazed over and they don't get it. It may be some of your family members or friends. The Bible tells us, though, that no one is righteous. Romans 3.23 says, For we have all sinned, we all fall short. We all fall short of the glory of God. Our own self-righteousness is our fatal sin because it it blinds us to our desperate need of a doctor. Pride keeps people from going to the doctor, and pride will keep people from the kingdom of God. We find the people who we would think should be the most interested in Christianity, the moral and religious, are always the least interested in real Christianity. Those were the teachers of the law. We expected them to be, oh, Jesus, you're here. We've been looking for you. They knew where he was, the Messiah was going to be born. They, they knew all the prophecies. And you say, well, they should be the one to welcome with open arms. They're the ones against them. We also find the very people that we would expect to be the least interested in Christianity, the uh, big sinners are always the most interested in real Christianity. Why? Because they know they're sinners. Nobody has to convince them they're a sinner. They know that. Nobody has to tell them. Well, let's close with just uh, the mission of Jesus' followers. So I want to do this uh, rather quickly. We need to understand that we don't play the role of the doctor. We can't heal anyone. We're just called to introduce people to the doctor. The phrase I love to use is we're just beggars who found bread and pointed people to the bread of life, Jesus. That's really what our role is. Our job isn't to convert people, our job isn't to win arguments. Our job isn't to prove that we're right and they're wrong. That's not our job. Our job is just to say, hey, here's where I found bread, spiritual bread, and it's feeding my soul. And I want to introduce you to the bread of life. And if you go to the bread of life, he will feed you too. You have to decide what you want to do with that. Now, I think we're, um, we're, we're missing opportunities. And the question I want to close with is just three points. How can we be better, uh, more effective witnesses of the gospel? How can we be more effective witnesses of the gospel? Three points, very quickly, because I don't have hardly any time left. We need to understand that no one is too far gone from the gospel. Never discount somebody. Never say they're too far gone. There's no hope. Because if I were to call a timeout right now and ask you to share your testimony, some of you would step up and you would say what your life was B.C., before Christ, and some of us who know you might say, oh, no, come on, stop lying. You lie all the time. Well, not anymore, but you, you basically the, the gist of it is you wouldn't believe it because there's been such a transformation. I already asked you the question. I said, would you think that you could be one of the disciples? And most of us were saying, no, no, I'm not good enough for that. See, that's that, that works-based righteousness that sneaks in all the time. So, so don't ever give up on somebody. Don't ever say they're too far gone. Secondly, we need to prepare uh, and guard our tongue. Guard your tongue. This is uh, write this verse down. Ephesians chapter four, verses twenty nine. Uh, do not let any unwholesome talk come from your mouths but only what is helpful for the building up others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen alright there immediately if you are gossiping that is absolutely wrong if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are gossiping you're not part of the solution or you're, part, you're not part of the problem part of the solution and you're talking to someone else who's not connected you are absolutely, go- you are absolutely gossiping and it doesn't build others up, and then he says, "And do not grieve the the, the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of re- uh, redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. be kind and compassionate to one another, one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Watch your tongue. Secondly. Check your behavior. Or number three, check your behavior. Um, look at what uh, Matthew write this down. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And then notice what he says. This is verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify you for them. No, it doesn't say that. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, that's the point I think Matthew is making when he's, he doesn't talk about his calling that I left everything and I had this powerful testimony. No, he didn't do that. He didn't, he, that wasn't his point. His point was glory to God. Glory to God. We're not about winning arguments. We're not about converting people. We're about turning people to the bread of life. We're about people finding freedom and finding Christ and finding their Father in heaven and glorifying our Father in heaven. That's what we're about. One of the biggest problems that Christianity has today is we have Christians that are living lives that are so not like what Christ calls us to live that there's no difference between our lives and theirs and they say what do you have you don't have anything that I don't have in fact my life's better than you I can go out and do the things you can't do so let me ask you again do you think you could be one of his disciples the answer is yeah you can because you are a disciple is a follower of Jesus. The question is, are we going to be a good follower or a bad follower? Why don't we start a trend and be good followers of his... I'm just being facetious here. But wouldn't it be great if, if followers of Jesus Christ, part of this faith community, were seen as people who love God more than anyone or anything, who watch their tongues, who, ha- who had a witness and directed people to Christ and to God, Who didn't have a political agenda, didn't get hung up on social issues, but really just cared about where a person was going to spend eternity, build friendships. I think that'd make a difference in our community. Maybe get behind things like St. Mark and Richmond, do stuff like that. I think it'd make a difference. Let's be that church, huh? Let's be that church. Let's pray. So, Father, help us because uh, without your help, we can't do that. This is not trying harder or being better. It's about allowing your spirit to work in our lives and control us and guide us. Help us to understand that we're sinners in need of a Savior, that without Christ we're under your wrath and we need uh, forgiveness, and that Christ went to the cross to take the wrath that we deserve and give us the righteousness we don't deserve. We love you, Father, but we love you first because you first loved us, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.